The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. A fantastic sermon uh, to our children. Are you glad to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Will you put your hands together for Jesus? For he is great and mighty. We've sung about him and his goodness. Uh, beloved, it is always a privilege and honor to open the Word of God up before you. And uh, I, we come to a passage this morning as we have been going through the book of Isaiah forever uh, that many of us are very familiar with. And it is important that we all uh, feel uh, the weight and the gravity of such a passage. Uh, I want to dive straight in in terms of what we what we see in our passage this morning is a five-part structure with three paragraphs, giving us a picture that is absolutely captivating because for the Israelites, this was just a servant. Um, Isaiah, known as one of the strong prophets and major prophets who wrote the most about the Messiah, uh, at this time prophesying about the Messiah, but yet they only seen the poem picturing a servant. But we know the end of the story, and so this allows us to see far more than just a servant. We see Christ. And so what I found in this drama, what captivated my heart and my mind in my study was verse 10 of chapter 53. Well, the part of this verse is translated as such, crushing him made the Lord happy. Let us read God's word, and I'll come right back to that. Behold, starting at verse 52, Isaiah 52, 13, through Isaiah 53, verse 12. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has been told, him, told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one, who, as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteem him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
and with his wounds we are healed. All, all, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like the sheep, like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when he has when, he, when his soul makes an offering of for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous, righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressor. Amen. Father, we come to your word knowing that this is the very word of the Lord, and we are thankful for your word. And God, I pray that our hearts are captivated, not by what Michael Davis says, but by what you say, Lord. Speak through me. Hide me in the shadow beneath your cross. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you are put before everyone, exalted, high, lifted up. Allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. All God's people said together, amen. Uh, I was starting my introduction before I realized I, I needed to read the scripture. I think I was just excited to preach God's word. So uh, I do want to welcome all of our guests and everyone that is joining us this morning. Um, if you're a first-time visitor, if you want more information about Downtown Church, please text 62488-62488, and you can learn more about Downtown and what we have going on here. Um, and also be able to be registered for uh, services, etc. Uh, today, also, I do want to acknowledge my wife. It is her birthday. She's 21 again. So, t t 20, 21 and 5. Huh? Amen, somebody. Uh, so, um, I got to get home to her. So, pray that I, I finish in time. 
But this morning, we should be captivated by, a, by the weight and the gravity of this text, entering into the drama where we're at, where I point us to t- verse 10 of 53, where, where it can be translated, crushing him made the Lord happy. Many of us should feel conflicted by this. Because in this passage, we all feel the emotional and spiritual weight of the text, but yet, at the same time, it seems as if there should be a level of heartache and awe that grips our minds and our hearts that deeply help us to, comp- cont- to contemplate the unjust brutality that this servant, our Christ, suffered. But what if I were to tell you this, because it seems pretty contradictory for the Lord to feel excited or happy about the sun being crushed. What if I were to tell you this, that if the police walked up to your door and told you that your son or your daughter, when you received the news, died because they successfully rescued 500 children out of a burning building, what would you think? I think it might be safe to say that you as a parent, although grieving their loss, would be proud that the heroic effort of your child was at the sacrifice to save many. That is the imagery or that is the thought in which when we look at this passage, we see and understand that God, Yahweh, the Lord, finds satisfaction not in the fact that that his son is just being offered as a guilt offering, that Christ is being offered as a sacrifice, but that he is sacrificing them for the very people that he loves. And so in the second half of the verse 10, we find that the statement is even weightier when this sentiment with the prophet writes that this guilt offering is a guilt offering in order to prolong his days, that the Lord uh, shall prosper in his hands or in his hand. And in, in our passage, we see that the scripture, the force of the scripture for the reader is causing them to wrestle with the love that God has with them and the iniquity and rebellion that they so enjoy. Honestly, one has to wrestle with the salvation that is laid before them. And the passage is situated nicely because when we look at this, there is so much language of sacrifice, so much language of offering, it points us right back to Leviticus. And when we need to understand that no one can craft a sacrifice or no one can make a sacrifice like this sacrifice. It is absolutely satisfying. So when speaking about this, we need to offer a level of clarity to understand on one end, the readers who do not understand that the servant is Christ, there is a level of clarity that they need. But yet we have that clarity. It reminds me of photography in which many of us enjoy. Our vantage point is different from the original audience vantage point. Depending on the lens that you use on a camera, there's a level of depth of field that comes into into play. The background could be blurred or the foreground could be blurred, but yet there is an image that is being pushed in front for many of us to see. And our passage puts in front of us the servant Christ alone as the very image that we need to see at the foreground. That everything behind them is blurred, and yet we are focused primarily on this clear picture. For instance, when this language is used uh, for Israel, what they are struggling with is the fact that this servant, one that is sacrificing, is not one that is wealthy, powerful, and attractive. It's a savior who was crushed by their enemies, delivered them to such, is a savior that they would like to see crush their enemies and be delivered to such wealth, 
power and attractiveness or influence, but yet they don't, they don't have that. And this is what I believe that we relate to, to the text, that we too would love a Savior that actually reflects what we desire him or it to do, right? The title always comes to my mind by James K.A. Smith's book, We Are What We Worship, and that is a fact. But this servant is not just one that we need to look upon who is suffering and unattractive and humiliated, but he is also exalted. And we see this because chapters 42, verses 1 through 9, describes this servant. 49, 1 through 6, describes the servant. 50, 4 through uh, 9, describes this servant. And the description of his character, of his nature, and of his call is placed before us. In the original audience, they struggle with this. But when we read it, isn't it funny that we feel the emotional weight and the spiritual gravity? It is because we know the end of the story. And I want us to speak to this or hear this passage from that vantage point. I want our camera lens to be focused in on the foreground of Christ being at the picture. Why is it important for the Messiah to be at the picture of this story? It is because he demonstrates his power through brokenness of humanity, through the weak and the feeble. It is through people who are totally incompetent that God shows that he is totally competent and all-powerful in order to use a people to proclaim his glory. This is what I want you to think about in terms of your big idea this morning, that Christ suffered. He suffered the humiliation, which actually leads to exaltation, so that we will live, we will live as a healed people. Christ suffered so that we will live as a healed people. Christ lived through this humiliation in order for us to share in his exaltation, taking wounds and punishment, broken and, 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 and beaten, guilty people providing a wholeness that is transcendent, that is otherworldly, that no one else can give us. That is a God that we serve. That is the God that loves us dearly. It's the God that we worship. And what we have is a couple points. That, that because he suffered, he wants us to be healed, but he wants us to boast in his power. Christ suffered so that we will boast in his power. Christ suffered so that we would also be fashioned by his wounds, and he suffered so that we would prosper in his sacrifice. The first point we see in 52, 13 through 53, three, verse 3, where, the, where God the Father in verse 13 of 52 actually puts the speaker in a, uh, is, is the speaker, and he grabs our attention by saying, behold, my servant. We come from where Michael Rhodes had given us a good picture of the sacrifice that what is to come from verse 51, chapter 51, leading up to this verse in 52, where we now see that behold, my servant shall act wisely. David Klein, an Old Testament scholar, translates this verse as, my, see my servant, his wisdom prospers. This brings the element of clarity for us. This zooms in our lens a bit closer because look at the exaltation language where it is, H1 is a climactic language where he says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Many times I think we struggle with the idea of what it means to praise God because many of us don't understand the weight and the gravity of what he has done for us. And it's hard, and I get it, 
Because when we are dealing with a, a understanding someone has given us salvation for eternity, saved us from the very wrath that we should, that we should all be deserving of. And we've read through Isaiah where the people of God directly worship other things. They directly worship idols. They mistreated people unjustly, unfairly. They were not good people. But I think we all struggle to think that we're good people. We want to be good people. We want to do well. We want to work in our communities and offer justice. We want to be recognized for the things that we do. We want to be boasted in, ultimately. But Christ suffered not for us to boast in ourselves. He suffered us for us to boast in him alone. But see, the picture of, that we have here is not a picture that we miss out of Philippians 2, 9, where Paul says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. We all heard illustrations of us all being excited <clears throat> about that particular name. Whatever star or person that we all quote, worship or adore, you know, whether it's a basketball player or a country music singer or the latest pop singer, whoever it may be, we all know that we, as soon as we hear that person's name, what it does for us, how it excites us. When your spouse comes home and shows you the tickets of the concert that you're going to, that you've been waiting to go to and how you get excited and you begin to celebrate the name of the person that you will go to worship at the concert. But I tell you this morning that God always wakes us up, giving us tickets to be at the most fantastic concert. And oftentimes we only wait to Sunday morning to give him glory, to give him praise. But can I encourage you this morning to say when God is giving you the breath in your lungs, when he is giving you sight to see, when he is giving you the very limbs to be functional, when he is giving you the ability to walk, when he is giving you the ability to be in your right mind, although you've been through so much trauma, although you've been through so much hurt, although you've been through so much pain, he's giving you the ability to be here because he sustains you. Don't boast in what you come through. Boast in how God has brought you through. He, is all, he ought to be exalted. But here's what's fascinating about our passage. That when we all receive those tickets, sometimes we are excited because that person is attractive to us. But here it is. The one that is to be exalted is not the one that is the most attractive. In fact, he is considered in the language here as disabled and deformed. Scholars also see that the appearance of this servant is distinguished in regards to his abnormal features, thus avoided and deemed an outcast. See, I think this is where we struggle. If we sing Christ, we would have to avoid him because we are not naturally going to gravitate towards him. See, we look at it from a spiritual sense that our sins allow us not to do it. But can I give you the imagery that if you are walking down the street and you see a person who has open wounds and bruises and scars, who seems as if they have no money in their pockets and that are, their clothes are, are battered and scattered and, 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 and ripped apart, would you want to be a person that actually welcomes that person in with the loving arms or are you the person that wants to walk on the other side of the street see the disabled and deformed servant is one that we don't necessarily want to be attracted to but isn't it funny that he is the thing he is the very individual that has everything to deliver us from how is it 
that this poor, deformed, disabled individual has all of the power to, 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 all of the power to deliver us. I think that it helps us to reorient our minds the way that we look at the disabled, the disenfranchised, those that have been treated unjustly, those that have been treated wrong for over time. We have to evaluate our history in order to know why we treat people the way that we are, the way that we have, and why do we have acts in place that only treats humanity a certain way because of what they have to offer. I want you to think about every element of our systems in society that it always seems as if those that are well astute, those that got all the degrees, those that got all the money and the influence, those that got all of the power seem to be the ones that have the ability to sit at the table. But Jesus tells us that we don't need those individuals to be the ones to speak for us. We need Jesus to be the one that will speak for us, deformed, disabled, and not most attractive. I'm telling you this morning, there are people that we have pushed aside that actually that can help us in our own society. There are people that we are oftentimes disregard that can help us in our own, our own society. We need to be a community of people that welcomes any and every individual into our body, into our lives. God, help us open up our eyes. God, help us to see more clearly. God, help us not to be blind because of our own worldview, because of how we were raised. Help us, Lord Jesus, not those that did not have much and you see people with influence. Help us not to see those people as sinful, individual, disregarded, uh, uh, and, and good-for-nothing people that are entitled to things. No, help us to be sensitive to those that do have much and those that don't have much. God is trying to help us to see his people. The reason being is because these aren't his wounds. These aren't his bruises. These aren't his issues. That is the problem. So why does, it, why does God use the most weak and unattractive characteristics of society? I just demonstrated that for you. But it's ultimately in order to be hu so humiliated that his power will be put on display. It will, it will shame those who like to take advantage of the most vulnerable, who are oppressed and disenfranchised. But what it also does, it enables those that are weak. Some of y'all, all of us, virtually or in person, you wake up sometimes and you don't want to look in the mirror because you're ashamed of who you are. You, you, you feel that the weak individual that is in the mirror, even though that you got things going on for your life, you don't deserve to be where you are or you can't stand. You've been trying to allow that status to be the very thing to beautify you, but yet you can't stand to look at the person that you see. I want to tell you that God's power is a love that helps you to embrace the very image he's created you in. But it also helps us to recognize that he enables the weak in order to startle the kings and the many nations. That's what you see in verse 14 um, and 15, that this human, that he was not astonished at, that he was marred and beyond human semblance, and that he was not, of the, he was in a form beyond that of children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle, literally right there means uh, startle many nations, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. Because of Christ, those that have the power will be shut up. The Babylonian those that are, have the people of God in captivity will be shut up. The Assyrians who held the people of God in captivity chapters ago will be shut up. Those that want to consistently beat and bruise the people of God will be shut up. 
Many of us are concerned. I don't know where you are on the political platform or where we are politically and concerned about the Equality Act, but God is not concerned about the Equality Act. God is not concerned about conservatism or liberalism. God will shut up every single power that is oppressing and abusing his church. He shows here that even though he comes in the most unattractive, disabled, and deformed way, that we can still boast in him because he's still powerful. And this is what 1 Corinthians 27 through 28 helps us when Paul, is, when Paul says, God chooses the, what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chooses what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. We are to boast in Christ. I struggle a lot of times when I see children, even my own son, who's not comfortable in their own skin. Kids that go to school oftentimes that don't feel as if they are worthy. And so what cool looks like is trying to emulate someone else. What cool looks like is like not feeling comfortable in one skin, whether it's black or brown. What it, what, it, what, what, what it looks like struggling with the image of every day, knowing that God has not created you in order for you to feel as if you don't mean anything because you are a woman or you're a boy, because of your own sexuality. God created you because he loves you. But he also created you, not because you're the most strong, not because you're the most profound, not because you are the most attractive. He confounds those who believe that they are in places of power by using us weak people. What does that mean? What does that mean? You have to admit that you are weak and feeble. You have to admit that you don't have it together. You have to wake up every single day and say, I'm not a perfect person, but God has made me. And in him, I find my perfection. I don't have all of the beauty that I desire. I don't have the shapes and the curves that I like, but God made me in order for, I, for me to feel satisfied and comfortable in the way that he's created to me to be. I, I don't have the, I'm not in that corner office. I'm not where I want to be professionally. I don't have that figure in my bank account. I, I don't have the status that I desire. I, don't, I ain't got, as, 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 as minuscule as it may seem, all the likes that I desire on whatever social media platform you desire. But God is saying that you don't need those things in order to feel as if you are somebody. You don't need those things in order for you to feel as if you can do things. I remember when Jesse Jackson said that you ought to say that I am somebody. Well, I believe that God alone says that you ought to declare that you are somebody because he's made you somebody. And it is you are somebody not because of what you have. You are somebody because of who you are. We find it through how Jesus says oftentimes we need to boast in him. But this, look at this, this rhetorical uh, 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 transition in the question of chapter, of chapter 53, verse 1, where he asks, who has believed what he has heard from us? So far, we've heard God the Father speaking. Now, the writer is back into, into the mix. And he says, who, who has heard this? And then he asks the next question, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, if we've been paying attention to Isaiah, we know that Isaiah 51, 9, and Isaiah 52, 10, that the arm of the Lord has awakened and has been called to awaken, and that the arm of the Lord also is a, a salvific imagery that the personal presence and power of God is actually with the people of God and is 
being called upon, and even resides amongst the people. It's not where the money resides. It's where God resides. Some of y'all will catch that. It is the power of God that resides amongst his people, but it's not in the fact that merely we have power. We have to always struggle and wrestle with the fact that when we do have influence, it doesn't mean that we have power to use for ourselves. God uses our, uses our weakness in order to perfect his power. Look at 2 Corinthians 12 and 9, where it says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, I, I know many of us may struggle with that idea. But let's say that in struggling with that idea, every single day you're dealing with depression anxiety and stress and the anxiety that you, it is so crippling that you cannot get out of your mind that everybody around you some way in some some form or shape or form is against you everything that's plotted against you let's say if it is what if we were to recite this scripture this week and keep it in our hearts in our minds just like rebecca had uh well the tie-dye person had encouraged the children. What if we were to encourage our children and ourselves to walk in the power of God? But see, the dynamic is a little different. I remember taking this leadership training that, uh, that I was sent through, and it was a, 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 it was a consultant that came and led us through this uh, group training, and uh, we all had to get into some personal stuff, and y'all know me. I'm not the most like ideogram person or Maya Briggs person. I'm not into all of the personality test stuff. I do think that it's useful in some aspects, et cetera. Um, but I don't think it's the Bible. So I don't think it's the Bible. So, but 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 what, what happened was there was one point that affected me the most. I'm gonna tell y'all, and, and it, it you know, I try to keep it together because you know, some stuff kind of hit me in the heart and it make me want to cry. But, but you know, it, I, I'm struggling with my own ways, okay? Don't judge me. See, a lot of times I get up here and preach and pour my heart out, and next thing you know, y'all judging me, okay? I, we on the trust tree this morning. And, and so when, I, when, when, the, when the leader of the deal started pressing in on him because I gave some surface stuff, he said, you know what, Mike, your power is your vulnerability. He said, he said, I, he said you try not to talk a lot in situations, but when you, but, but you, try not, you try to hide the way you feel. You try to, you try to hide your, your weaknesses. He said, but when you let people into your weaknesses, they find power in your vulnerabilities. I couldn't help but to relate this to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, where God is saying that my grace is sufficient in that. In fact, not only is my grace, but my power is made complete in your weakness. It's made perfect in your weakness. It's not made perfect in how strong you are. It's not made perfect in how good you are. It's not made perfect in how fine you are. It's not made perfect in the way that you got everything together. It's not made perfect in those things, Mike. It's made perfect when you tell people, I ain't got it together today all day. I, I, I'm struggling with this situation. I, I, I've been falling just a bit. I, I've been weak with my spouse. I've been short-tempered with my children. I, I just ain't got it together. I'm weak today when we come understanding our weakness Isaiah 53 helps us because it says that yes it was one who would board our weaknesses our griefs our sorrows our pain all of the wounds that we have in order for us to feel comfortable being vulnerable to this Christ and so what we understand then is this 
is that the figurines that we make in our lives should not be figurines that show our power from within. It should be figurines that actually resemble God and him along. It's in Africa. It was in uh, the Congo where, uh, uh, not in, in the Congo, it's, sorry, I'm ahead of one illustration. It was seven, and since uh, in 2013, there was this uh, Christian Canadian sculptor. His name was Timothy Schmoltz. And what he did was he was placing a sculptor depicting, depicting homelessness uh, of a man that was sleeping around the globe. It was this life-size bronze statue that appeared to be an anonymous because he hid his face in his hands. And he was placed under a blanket. But the, the gaping wounds revealed who the person was, and it was actually Jesus. And he named it Matthew 25. In reference to the quote of, in the gospel, that he says, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for, for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Surprisingly, this statue had appeared in front of many churches, and people found it to be extraordinarily controversial. It was one Episcopal church in Davidson, North Carolina, that uh, the woman said, called the police and said that this, uh, this should not be in our neighborhood. Many felt that there was an insult to the Son of God, and churches had even refused to have the sculpture installed in front of their institution, where it was one church, where David, Reverend David Bulk said that this is relatively, in a relatively influent church, and we need to be reminded ourselves that our faith expresses itself in active concern for the marginalized of our society. We believe that the kind of life Jesus had, he was, in essence, a homeless person. Beloved, the reason we boast in the power of God is because as a church, we're not a wealthy church. But you heard me say two weeks ago that I want us to be a church that is a legacy church. I don't think that we need to have a well-endowed church in order to be a church that leaves a legacy. Because the legacy that we have are the children that are coloring right here on the ground, the children that we're trying to rile up, and the children that you're trying to keep in place as you're watching this virtually. That indeed is our legacy that will continue to hold our people accountable to see the beauty, not in wealth, but a beauty in what humanity has to offer in weakness. The beauty, not in the influence, but a beauty in the flaws. The beauty, not in how intelligent a person is, but the beauty in how one needs help with one another. See, the beauty is to change our minds that the very thing that we desire to worship is the very thing that we're attracted to, but it's not the thing that we need to boast in. Can I call us to boast in Christ and Christ alone? And so the next thing is, not only do we boast in that, because, listen, I know that we boast in the things that we often answer, get God to answer prayers. When God answers our prayers, we're excited. When we get those unanswered prayers, we feel as if God is nowhere. But can I encourage you to let you know that even when a prayer is not answered, it's because God has you in mind. He has your best in mind. And so we're not only to boast in him, but we are to be fashioned by his wounds fashioned by his wounds. Because when the text says, when we look at verse 5 at the, at the latter part, it says, and with, with, with his wounds we are healed. It essentially is saying, by, fashioned by the very things that he has gone through. Remember, he's gone through so many issues to where he was born of our griefs. 
carried out our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted, and pierced by our transgressions, crushed by our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, all of which caused us to be fashioned. I find that that is hard for us because what does it mean for us to be fashioned? I think it shows and demonstrates the transformative power of what suffering means. That our suffering was not a partial suffering placed upon him, but it was solely placed upon him. When I read that, it said nothing, there were no personal pronouns that actually led to us or to the original readers. All of the personal pronouns were afflicting the savior or the servant. Why is that important for us? It's important for us to understand that is because when in verse six in the latter part where it says, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to wonder from the God I love. Huh? But how deep is this father's love for us? It's so deep that even when you resist him, even that yet while you were still sinners hostile towards him, he said that I am going to die for you. Even when you were resisting him, fighting him, abusing him, rebelling him, he found, the Lord found that he would not only let you just go about your own way, he is going to lay upon you every single thing that you continue to do. That's what he says, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's not partial. That's not half of it. And I think that that's hard for us to comprehend. Because humanity oftentimes struggle with making sure that someone can carry your burden. But let me tell you, Jesus did more than carry your burden. And even when the people of Israel turned to other gods, the prophet said he still took on everything in order to love his people. I don't think we believe it, but meanwhile, as we were looking at this, I think that the servant helps us to see not only that he suffered, he doesn't suffer in community. He doesn't suffer with somebody come alongside him. He does it in isolation from humanity and distinction from the Lord. He suffered under sin and the Lord laid his and under the Lord's hand the entire time. God was being broken apart in order for us to be made whole. A picture of transformative wholeness is a picture of God's power under the hand of God. In the lower Congo in Africa, what they would do is they would call upon this craft. It was called a power object and it was fashioned out of wood and it was in the shape of a human being and they thought that it possessed supernatural healing powers. And when there was any kind of sickness in the village, physical, emotional, or spiritual, the priest would come, and he would take, so he would take something associated with, with the suffering person, such as a lock of hair or a piece of cloth, and he would nail it to this wooden fetish. To, this act tells the spirit that what is wrong, and he calls upon its power to heal the problem. Now all of us see the problem with that. But Christians, we don't need a fetish. When we fed it, when, we, when the flesh, just like ours, was nailed to the cross, God healed us of our greatest problem, 
sin and death. But can I tell you, he also healed you from their childhood problems. He's also healed you from the very things that you're in counseling for. And he is continuously healing you from the things that you're suffering to struggle with in a church that's broken. Wholeness doesn't come because a church got it together. A wholeness is founded on the very foundation that is upon Christ and him alone. And what we understand is as a church, we're fashioned together by every pierce, by every chastisement, by every affliction, by every moment of grief. And we grieve together. We lament together. We call upon the name of the Lord together, beloved. I want to emphasize that as your pastor, because I know in a season in which God had, to, Jesus had to suffer in isolation, he doesn't call us to that. He calls us to share in one another's joy, share in one another's sorrows, and when we do so, we strengthen each other as the body of Christ. So by his wounds, we are healed together. But there's a level of transformative, a transformative act of justice that are here, that's here. Oppressed, afflicted, oppressed, and judged. He's also died, and he committed no violence. This is what the text says in verses 7 through 9. He died and committed no violence. He died and committed no deceit, and yet he didn't open his mouth. Now, one time, he didn't have any objections to him being sentenced to death. The reason I believe that this is not just merely a restorative act of justice, which we use in a church and in secular society, a transformative act of justice is one that I believe is related to the sacraments and the sacrificial law. A transformative act of justice says that what one has and the power one has can actually be transferred to the other individual. Restorative acts of justice in our society say that we're going to restore our communities and we're going to do so by being able to place ourselves in, in, in a lower position in order to uplift the other individuals. There are principles that are, basic, that are based on restorative act of justice, but I, want, I believe the text helps us to see that Jesus was oppressed, the servant was oppressed, he was afflicted, not merely just to restore, though that that is a big part of the entire story, but to transform. Justice that is transformative is outside of this world. It's otherworldly. Because we're so broken, we don't have desire. We don't have that desire. Remember when Philip seen the Ethiopian eunuch? What was he reading? Isaiah 53. The Ethiopian eunuch, who was eunuch, was on his way. Jesus led Philip to jump in there and say, "What are you reading, brother? Can I help you translate this?" And when he did, do you believe, can you believe that the transformative act of justice led him to say, where can I be baptized? So this is what I believe, that not only does justice mean that we just do right amongst those that are hurting and broken, but that when they enter our places, they want to be baptized. They want to partake in the sacraments. They want to, be live, they want to live with a life of change, not just societally, but a soul change. Transformative justice changes the soul, not just restores the soul. And that, beloved, is a beautiful picture of what Jesus lays before us. Why? Because we understand that when we prosper, next point, prosper in the sacrifice of Christ. What it means is out of the anguish we find, Christ finds, this is the Lord now speaking. He says, yet, you got to put your finger, you got to circle yet, because it's yet Yahweh. Yet the Lord will to crush him. 
And then he says, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul shall see, he shall see and be satisfied. How is the Lord satisfied at the suffering of another individual? It is because he has an object in mind. And it is suitable for him to do so because it is you. It is the reader. And part of this is anticlimactic because you would think that we would get to that point and we would preach that point or the prophet, he would make this poem so powerful, but by the end they would have this hope. But by the end you feel the weight once again. Because he says in verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. You remember in Titus, if you know your Bible well, you remember in Titus chapter 3, right? Titus chapter 3, what does he say? What did he pour out on the people of God? He poured out according to Titus chapter 3, verse, starting in verse uh, 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 4. He says, but when the goodness and the loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in, in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Spirit, whom, by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us, not partially, richly, so the contrast throughout Isaiah 53 is not that just as richly, if we want to use that verb, the, the suffering was for Christ, richly do we benefit from the suffering of Christ. Because he poured it on us so that we will be justified by his grace. And see, he says in, in, in the end, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession. This is what I want us to realize, that the will of the Lord crushes. There is a plan. Will of the Lord prospers through his suffering to be satisfied out of his anguish. But get this, beloved. He makes, as he is suffering, intercession for each of us. How many of us have ever watched anybody go through pain, but yet pray for, pray for their family? on their deathbed. Pray for their family as they're going through pain. Why? Because Christ wants to see the church whole. He wants to see you whole. And there was an illustration that I found that was interesting because make intercession literally means that he is the bridge. He is the mediator. And the mediator is the example we've seen through verses 1 through 9 of chapter 53. This is what it meant for him to be that mediator. And when you think about a bridge, oftentimes you think about a bridge that has the stability not to collapse, no matter the weight that is on it. It was in 2007, there was the I-35 bridge across the Mississippi and Minnesota. And it collapsed suddenly during rush hour with killing 13 people and injuring 145 people. The investigation revealed that the plates that were connected to the girders together in the truss system were undersized, resulting in a structural flaw, leading to the collapse. After a year, after a year of the tragedy, the New York Times had summarized it. And essentially what they said was, because this bridge was built in 1960, and for 40 years this bridge had been 
taking on various different constructions and being wide and being made more wide and being changed, that it did not have the, the, the stability over time to withhold all of the pressure. It had weak spots. And beloved, what that meant is the bridge didn't have the integrity necessary to hold what was coming across. Jesus is the bridge that has all of the integrity. He is the one that will not collapse. He gives us the eternal perspective that as he will not collapse, he lacks absolutely nothing. So therefore, his sacrifice gives us absolutely everything. And he lays down his life, not because the father told him to. It's because he did, did so because he chose to do it. His sacrifice was a choice. It was not a burden. And beloved, that's, what you, that's how you need to see yourselves. When you come to Christ and you partake at this table, don't see yourself as a burden. Stop seeing yourself as a burden in life. Stop putting so much weight on yourself spiritually. Stop making it seem like you got to have it all together every single day. The application for us is to live in the power of our vulnerabilities through Christ and him alone, knowing that he is the one that fashions us each and every day by the wounds that he has suffered. And therefore, we prosper not because of our sacrifices, not because we feel like we're giving ourselves to our community, not because we feel like we're giving ourselves to those that are amongst us in our own body. It is because we have a deep sense of what it means to be forgiven by God. Have you ever done something so wrong that somebody had to forgive you? How deep is God's love? How wide is his love? How long? How high can you live in that power, in that alone? He suffered so that you may be healed. God, heal us because we need it. What you paid for, no one else could pay for it. What you did, none of us have the strength of doing Help us not just to sing praises, but to be captivated by the power of your grace, to know what it means to worship you in spirit and in truth, to worship you all the days of our lives by the power that resides in us. Let us worship through you and you alone. For we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. All God's people said together.